It's time for another encounter with the truth, and today's theme is God's jealous exclusiveness, jealousy. It's usually equated to a supercharged suspicion or an insecure distressfulness. But is there another usage of jealousy? Maybe an old-fashioned meaning that exposes one of the most important facts that we must recognize about our relationship with our Creator? Here's our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, to help us find the answer together. Someone that has a supercharged suspicion. They won't let their girlfriend even look at another guy at all and they try to just keep them completely closed in and we talk about them being suspicious or they just don't have any faith in that person and that's when we use jealousy in english and we equate it to envy it's exactly the same thing as envy and it is green and it is negative but you know in english there's another way that we can use the word jealous the word jealous in english can be used of an exclusive demand for faithfulness is it wrong for example for a husband to demand the exclusive devotion of his wife or vice versa is it wrong for a wife to man to demand the exclusive devotion of her husband is that wrong no no and so it's right for us to say that the husband has a jealous desire for his wife to be devoted to him and that's when we use the word very positively. God likes to use the word jealous. In fact, one of the prime descriptions of God in the Old Testament goes like this. I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. I want you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we're going to continue with Moses' sermon in chapter 4, verse 15. As Moses focuses us on this jealous, exclusive nature of God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. There we read these words. You saw no form going back to the scene at Mount Sinai when the Lord came down, as we tried to picture for you in our last lesson. It said on Mount Sinai, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord God spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Why? So that you do not become corrupt. Now, what's this corruption going to involve? And make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like an animal or any animal that's on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has appointed to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting pot, out of the furnace of Egypt, to be a people for his inheritance as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is going to give you as your inheritance. Instead, I will die. I will die in this land, and I will not cross the Jordan. But you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful. Don't forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol. 
Do not make an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Moses has a tremendous burden on his soul in these verses of chapter 4. His burden is that the children of Israel are going to go into the promised land. They're going to have incredible prosperity. And as the abundant blessings, a lot of the kind of blessings that we've had in most of our families here in the United States, the abundance of food, he talks to them about the fact that he's going to give them uh, beautiful homes and places to live that they didn't build themselves. They were able just to conquer their enemies and go in and take over the land of Canaan. And it was like walking into a house fully furnished. And yet Moses was concerned when they have all that material prosperity, their hearts will be sucked away. They'll be seduced away. And they'll start to worship things instead of worshiping the true God. You know, as I read a passage like that, it's easy for me as an Old Testament major to go back and I, I start to think of the little Canaanite figurines that you've probably seen pictures of or maybe maybe you've even seen them in the museum and all these little uh, figurines of Eshtart and and Baal and all the different idols that they worship in Canaan. And I say, well, you know, God, that really isn't my thing. You know, that's really not exactly my temptation. I mean, the closest thing I came to that was being raised back east with a lot of kids that used to have little statues up on their cars. Uh, they used, I think it was St. Christopher that was going to protect them. And yet there were so many accidents that they took St. Christopher out of the car and desainted him because he wasn't doing his job. You know, too many of the people that were praying to him were, were getting killed in fatal accidents. That's about the closest thing I've ever came to little figurines that might captivate someone's worship. But you know, as we stop and think about what the essence of idolatry is, it's when our heart is seduced away from an exclusive devotion to the one and only God, and we begin to worship other things. For example, in our cultures, our kids might be at a, a public gathering, and the little ritual they have just seems very innocuous, seems very innocent, all they do is grab a little dirt and sprinkle it here and sprinkle it here. And then they instruct all the children to give thanks to, to Mother Nature. And then they give them a very skillful talk about the need in ecology, the need to protect Mother Earth. It seems very innocent and certainly we need, following the book of Genesis chapter 1, where we've been appointed as God's administrators over His creation, Certainly we need to take care of God's creation. But in our culture right now, we're moving towards the stress upon the mother goddess, Mother Earth, who has given birth to all the universe as we know it. And what might seem to be just an innocuous little ceremony will be right going back to those ancient days of Canaan when they worshipped the goddess of the earth who was prayed to to bring fertility. When you got up this morning and you got your Monday paper, some of you possibly got up early enough and maybe one of your little rituals that you go through is you check out the astrology page. And you say, Dave, it's just an innocent game. It's just pretend. You know, I just look up under my sign and I look at what the forecast of the day is and what the forecast of the week is. Beware. Beware. That's the modern version of astrology and what the Lord was talking about here. In ancient Egypt, 
they worshipped the sun. In fact, they had two sun gods. One, they worshipped the sun, and then they also worshipped the sun disk. In, uh, in Mesopotamia, up in Babylon, they would worship the god of the sun, Shamash. They'd also worship the moon. And their hearts were seduced away. And you see, the basic idea was, is as they looked at the grandeur of those heavens, and the Babylonians and the Egyptians became very adept at determining mathematically the movement of those astrological, um, heavenly, celestial things in the sky. And they would worship them. And they believed that there was this fate, this order. In Egypt, they called it Ma'at, the order of the universe. You hear talk today very similar to that. Julian Huxley, one of our foremost intellectuals of the past generation. Julian Huxley said, we need to debunk, we need to trash this God hypothesis. We need to become progressively modern and we need to worship the modern forces of the evolutionary development. It's that same idea, the worship of the impersonal sky, the worship of the movement of the stars, the worship of fate, the worship of the force. And there it comes into our culture, this pull into idolatry. Now, some of us sit here and go, Dave, man alive, I notice right away, boy, when Mother Goddess, Mother Earth is being raised, I know, I know right away that's idolatry. Man, I wouldn't be caught dead looking at an astrology chart. What about when you, when you sit in a brand new Mazda, like I did on uh, Friday night. My brother-in-law just got a brand new Mazda. And we had to go up and get the pizzas from, uh, from Caesars. And uh, we sat down in the front seat of that with a leather, you know, that marvelous leather smell. And we started to run and say, boy, this is really a neat car. And I started to feel, boy, what would it be like if I had this car? Man, it would be nice to be driving up the superhighway and, and have, you know, somebody drive up and I get those knots, you know. Boy, I'm somebody. I'm really special. That's materialism there's nothing wrong with having a Mazda my brother-in-law really needed a new car his, old, his other car was about eight years old and in his business he can well afford to be able to get this car in fact he even you know gave me the standard Christian excuse I got a good deal on it <laughs> I can hardly wait till the Christian just says you know I got this car because I like it and I think the Heavenly Father gave me enough you know, funds to be able to make the payments on it. Thanks be to God. You know, we always say, oh, I got a good deal on it. We always excuse ourselves. But you know, when you sit there and you think you're important, if you drive a certain car, and all the ads proclaim to us, you know, if you have this car, you're really going to be important. That's idolatry. You see, what's happened is that, that a material thing has weaseled over and it started to grab my heart. And my heart starts to feel like, you know, I'm somebody. You know, I have meaning. Life is worth living because I have this thing. And God doesn't want us to be sucked into that. Why? The reason Moses was so strong in this passage of Deuteronomy is that Moses had received this inspired message from God that if you live for the smell of those leather seats and you live for that that aluminum that used to be steel that's around you, you're gonna, you're, your life's going to turn out empty. It's going to kill you in the end because in future years, that marvelous car that you thought brought so much meaning to your life is going to end up over here. They put in an electronic furnace and the thing is, boof, it's gone. And so will all the meaning of your life be gone 
if you just live for things. That's what idolatry is. You see, all of this paraphernalia they had in the ancient world, all these little figurines and all the different pantheons of their gods, it was just another expression of how to worship things, how to worship the created thing, instead of worshiping the Creator. And God comes to us and says, I don't want you to waste your life just living for those things. I don't want your heart to find meaning and to be inspired to live by something that's just going to ooze away and be gone. Instead, I want you to have a heart that's devoted to me. Because I am the true God. I'm the living God. I'm the one that's going to live forever. I'm the one that even if you're very sick, even if you're facing the eternity of, of what might happen when you die, I'm the God, our Heavenly Daddy comes to us and says, I'm the God that's going to be there for you. And all those other things are going to disappear. And they're not going to mean anything. And I don't want you to live for a lie. Now, sadly, though Moses preached this message very strong and it was a powerful message, Moses had to go on in the next section of our scripture after warning the children of Israel not to worship the astrological signs of the heaven, after warning them not to worship the fertility cycles, and after warning them not to get caught up in materialism. Moses had to go on and he did an incredible thing in the next few verses. He lays out the entire history of the Jewish nation. Look at it in the next paragraph. It's verse 25. After you have had children and grandchildren, in other words, after they lived in the land for many years, long enough to have children and grandchildren, if you then become corrupt and you make any kind of idol, just exactly what he told them not to do, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and provoking Him to anger. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord your God will scatter you among the peoples, and only few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship, in this exile, you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. I want you to catch the magnitude of what I've just read to you. This was written in approximately 1400 B.C. And I'm speaking to you in the 21st century. I want you to stop and think about the history of the people that Moses spoke to. Moses told them even before they went in and possessed the land, he said, you're going to have children and grandchildren, but when you're prosperous, when you've got all this material prosperity, that's going to be the time that you're going to forget. And that's a very strong message for us. When we have everything, when we have our houses, when we have our grandkids around us, when we're rejoicing in all this prosperity, I find in my own life, how about you? That's when I forget to give thanks. That's when I begin to think maybe just this life is all there is. Maybe I can get it together just living in the now. And then you start to take your gaze off the eternal God and you begin just to live for things and what this life can bring. It happened to Israel. And God said when you do that, 
because of my exclusive devotion to you, I'm going to bring judgment against you because I am a fiery, jealous God. The first judgment to come was the Assyrians. The Assyrians came down in 733, 734, and a, and a king named Tiglath-Pileser III took all of northern Galilee and all the tribes that were settled in Transjordan that we've been studying in the first two chapters of Deuteronomy, the ones that settled in the land of Og and Sion, in 734 they were taken into exile. And they were totally amalgamated into the Assyrian people, a vicious, angry, militaristic people. And those people among the Assyrians cried out, and they prayed for the day when they could worship God anew. But it was a day of exile. In 586, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came down. Starting in 605, he came down and took Daniel and several of the other Davidic royalty into captivity. But in 586, Nebuchadnezzar's armies came down and devastated the children of Israel and took them into exile. Exactly what Moses said. But in exile in Babylon after 70 years, because he'd prophesied in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord heard the cries of the people and they returned. And they came back and they resettled in the land of Palestine. And so when the Lord Jesus came in the first century, there was a people that was called out in that land. But they wouldn't listen to the Messiah. They wouldn't worship the true God. They wouldn't open their hearts to what it really meant to love the Lord thy God with all their hearts. And so when they rejected the Messiah and the nation, he came unto his own and his own received him not. He hung on a cross and then the third day he arose again. Remember they cried, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And the sin, not just of the Jewish people, very important to realize, not just the sin of the Jewish people, but all of our sin put Jesus on the cross and he died. But his blood was on that generation. And in 70 A.D., the Roman legions came down and stone by stone, they tore down the temple. Crucifix after crucifix, they hung Jews. And what started what's now become a more than 1900 year journey and exile began to become a reality. When you study the history of the Western world, the centerpiece of it all is the Jewish people. I go into Jonathan's history class and they're studying the, uh, they're studying the medieval period. And what do they talk about? They talk about the persecution of the Jews. Jonathan's professor told of a story where uh, a terrible, terrible rumor developed, kind of a mythological fairy tale that was more like a horror story. In a small village in England, they started to say that at Passover time, the Jews sacrificed one of the Gentile children. And there was a little boy that was killed in this town of Norwich. And they blamed the Jews for it. And, and a terrible rumor swept all over Europe. And hundreds of Jews were imprisoned and then killed because of this false belief that they were slaying children during Passover time. So during the Middle Ages, that's just one small story of the kind of terrible persecution that the Jewish people endured during the Middle Ages. It just didn't start with Hitler in World War II. But you're all familiar with the terrible persecution against the Jewish people during World War II. And Mary and I have sat uh, and just pondered for hours 
in what's called the Vad Yashem Museum in, in, the, in the Holy Land. And it's an unbelievable museum that I've shared with you about some in the past. Where you can begin at the beginning before World War II started, the beginning of the Holocaust. And frame by frame in startling black and white pictures, it takes you through the death camps. And you just go from one frame to the next. And when you're all done, you just sit down. And the tremendous burden of the horror that's been done against this people. And I ask the question, how can I be sitting in the Holy Land? And how can David, my guide, be taking us around and I'm seeing thousands of Jews that have fled back to this land? And it comes back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because God told Moses they will not only be exiled because they rejected me, they will not only be scattered among the nations, and the nations will try to destroy them, but they won't be able to do it. Moses also said there would come another day, a new day. And her passage closes not with God threatening exile, but with God promising restoration. But it says in verse 29, But if from there, in that exile, you will seek the Lord your God, you will find Him. If you look for Him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress in all these things that have happened to you, then in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and then you will obey Him. Why? Because the people are so good? Because the people have earned it? No, because of amazing grace. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, that's with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which he confirmed to them by an oath. In those brief verses, you just put together the theology of all the Old Testament. You see, the theology of the Old Testament is centered in a gracious, merciful promise that God just chose to love Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And most of all, I'm going to give you a male heir who's going to bring blessing to all the world. In him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God gave the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai to forever demolish the idea that we can relate to God by law, that we can, that we can earn favor with Him by obeying moral precepts and principles. And what Moses did, and I want you to see that this is right in the heartbeat of the book of Deuteronomy, right in the centerpiece of the law, Moses describes the whole history. God gave them a good law. God gave them exactly how to live. But because of man's heart of sinfulness and rebellion, he turns away from that law. He turns into idolatry and he worships things and he worships everything God says not to worship. But in his distress, in his distress, in that place of judgment, like Romans 1 says, for the wrath of God is poured out against all the unrighteousness of men. In that distress, if man will look to God, Moses says God's not very far from any one of us. He said God is closer than your heartbeat. God is closer than your breath. And in your distress, if you will confess your idolatry, confess the pride of your heart, and you will return, then God will restore you. The New Testament puts that all together and explains how the righteous God of heaven, the righteous judge of all the universe is able to do that. And it's because he shed his blood for us.
Moses is telling every one of us. Think about what's going on inside. What's at the center of your heart? Your God is whatever is at the center of your heart. Today we have talked about jealousy and as we raise this issue of what's at the center of your heart, what has exclusive control over the core of your being, we're asking the question that is the most important question we could ever ask of ourselves because the scripture tells us that we need to trust in God with all of our heart. That means that we need to lie face down before our sovereign creator, before our sovereign Lord. We need to totally and completely worship him and adore him. It's only as we invite Jesus Christ, his son, into our lives that that rebelliousness that is part of our old way of life and that that tremendous tendency to worship other things like we started out the program sharing how quickly we get into the worship of nature how quickly we begin to worship the stars how quickly we begin to worship even our automobiles and oh how we need to hear the thrust of what Deuteronomy chapter 4 had to say to us today about the jealousy of our God and I pray that God's jealous exclusive devotion to you would not be looked upon as a negative thing. In this world where there's so much stress upon the need for toleration, we have forgotten what it means to be exclusively and faithfully devoted to what is true, to what is ultimately right, to the one, the ultimate, true Lord of heaven and earth, who alone deserves our adoration and praise. 